Jeff Johnson here at the Living Undeterred podcast. I'm excited to have Jazz Rawling, Rawlinson. There's no G in there. Um, from uh, Queensland, I want to say Brisbane, <laughs> but I'll hack it up. So <laughs> how about Australia? That's easier. <laughs> Queensland, Australia. So tell me what part of Australia do you reside? Yeah, so I'm in Brisbane. Um, and as Aussies, we always shorten our words or kind of say them not how they look like they should be said. So I understand why whenever I'm speaking to people in the US in particular, they always say Brisbane. And I'm like, that is actually how it's spelled. It probably should be said like that, but we just say Brisbane, Brisbane, almost like a bin, yeah. <laughs> Brisbane. I just know it's a beautiful part of the world that I've always wanted to go to. And uh, maybe someday when my life slows down a little bit, I can, I can make it yeah, there. But be amazing. Um, so I'm excited to talk with you. You know, I've had a chance to follow you a little bit on LinkedIn and vice versa. And, um, you know, I'm one of the great things about this podcast for me, and I'm sure you are the same way that you meet some great people with some very compelling stories. And I always like, I mean, there's that superficial picture of everybody. Like I got my, I am living undeterred and you go to your you know, profile on LinkedIn and you've got your kind of profile up there. But I always like to find out how did you get here? Like, why do you do what you do? Now, your profile says domestic violence advocate and speaker. So, you know, I don't have to be a rocket scientist to kind of figure out kind of where that, where that led to, to be doing what you're doing. So maybe you can start off our show today just by a little background about you and your why, and we'll just see where this ends up. Yeah, for sure. So what I do today, the work I do today is, as you said, domestic violence advocacy. Um, I work as a resilient speaker and I also do book coaching as well. And so I have always been fascinated by storytelling ever since I was a kid. I was the kind of kid who would lie on my bed reading, um, reading books, usually books about horses. That was my thing, like many young girls. But mm. I think although I was always a very creative person and always really interested in storytelling for me, books and writing and all those kinds of things, I think they were a bit of an escape as well. Um, and that was because mm -hmm. I was living in a home with a perpetrator of domestic violence, which in our house um, mm. was my dad. So books mm -hmm. and writing and all these kinds of things were, I guess my way of disappearing into something a little bit. And right. yeah, right. trying to, yeah, kind of escape from the fear and the isolation and the loneliness that I felt really from, from the age of 10 through to 18 were probably were the hardest years with my dad. And, um, you know, when I share my story, I often say anybody who's in my kind of age bracket, I'm in my late thirties will know that back in the 1990s and early two thousands, we didn't didn't really have a lot of public discourse about things like mental health and, mm -hmm. um, you know, domestic violence or anything like that. And if you ever did see something yeah. about DV, it was always an image of, you know, the battered woman that's cowering in the corner. And that's certainly yeah. not who my mother was. You know, she wasn't, she learned about, you know, when she could stand up for herself and when it was safe to do so and when it wasn't. But she was never the woman that was cowering on the floor, 
Um, and the domestic violence in our home was mostly not physical. Um, majority of the time it was emotional and mental and financial and all of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so as a young girl in that kind of period of time, I didn't actually have a, a name or words for what was going on. Um, and I guess the mm -hmm. short of my story is that, yeah, for my teenage years, I was a highly suicidal, very anxious, very depressed young woman. And then when my when I was 18, just after finishing school, my dad actually um, suicided. And so that just added a whole mm -hmm. other level of trauma to um, what I was experiencing. And that led me into many unhealthy relationships and situations. And mm -hmm. that led me to my rock bottom moment, which happened at the age of 20. And life after that, I'd say mm -hmm. for the next 10 years was really just about trying to rebuild and work out what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until I was about 30 that I, I really started to step into the advocacy space and do the work that I do today around domestic mm. violence and suicide prevention and mental health and all of those sorts of things. So, um, I mean, there's so much more we can dig into if you want to, but that's kind of the snapshot yeah. of, of what I was experiencing and, and what I went through. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, I didn't have my rock bottom moment till age 52. Mm. So I'm 57 now. Um, and so I appreciate you sharing that story. I, I wanted to ask you, when you were 10 or 9 or 8, A, were you aware that this was a typical house? Or did you think most kids grew up in house, this was like normal? Yeah, that's a really good question. When did you, when did you, realize, that, when did you realize that this was a unique situation to, to your family and that not all your friends were going through this? Yeah, well, well things with my dad were not not too bad sort of in those couple of years before the age of 10, but that's when I really remember that he started to become a lot more aggressive, angry, volatile. But I think mm -hmm. probably around the ages of maybe 13, 14, especially 15, I would go to my girlfriend's mm -hmm. houses and their dads all seemed so normal and so lovely. And I, yeah. mean, I guess in hindsight right. too, and we all know this, nobody's family is perfect. And there are, cer Amen, there are certainly yeah. um, people that I've spoken to from my high school in the years since who've revealed some things that they were going through that I, yeah. I would never have guessed. But, you know, most of my right. friends, quite a few of them did have really good families. And so it used to really, really pain me and actually cause a lot of, yeah, a lot of anguish for me that I didn't have a dad who was so caring and loving like some of yeah. my friend's dads. And so, yeah, certainly as right. I was in my mi middle of my teens, I think I was starting to realize my home is not like this, um, but I still don't really have the words to describe what it is. Like I'm not even sure if I would have said the words domestic violence back then because I wasn't seeing yeah. anybody being beaten or anything like that. Now, did you, did your curiosity get peaked at certain points of your life about your dad's history? Like why maybe your dad felt this way? And um, have you done research? And I mean, I, I didn't, 
I'm sure you're pretty open and talk about this stuff, but was there substance abuse or trauma or abuse in his childhood that probably just followed him as he got into adulthood? Yeah, it's really interesting. I've had quite a few people actually ask, you know, was there substance abuse there? And, you know, it's a fair enough question to ask, but it's interesting because he he was not really a drinker at all. Um, he would have his mm-hmm. one or two light beers maybe once a week and that was it. He was not into drinking, um, so he was never like the drunk, aggressive person, which I don't know if that makes it any worse or better, but he was such a frightened yeah. person to be around. But there was nothing, yeah, there was no substances to blame it on. I have learned in more recent years, and especially um, especially last year when I was writing my most recent book, which is called The Stories We Carry, and I was writing my actual memoir and my experiences as a teen. So I did spend some time talking with my mom about it and actually learning some things that I wasn't aware of. Um, Because growing up, yeah, dad never really spoke. I knew he didn't have a close relationship with his side of the family. There was like a bit of dysfunction there. And Mm -hmm. I knew that he'd experienced some trauma growing up because when he was um, fairly young, his mother was involved in a really serious accident. She was actually getting something out of the back Mm -hmm. of her car and another car just came straight up and, and just sandwiched her between their car and hers. Oh, man. So she was a quadriplegic. That's his, that's your, that's, that's uh, his mom? That's his mother, yeah. Your dad's mom, So, okay. and I, I didn't really grow up very close to his side of the family, but I do remember that, yeah, I didn't really have a connection with his mom because I, I found it really awkward as a, as a, you know, kid and a teen to, know how to communicate with her um, because, yeah, like she was in, she was quadriplegic, she was in a wheelchair, she had issues with speech. and mm. But I think back now about how traumatic that must have been for him and I think yeah. my mum actually told me that I think he may have even found out about it from somebody else or on the news because, you know, we didn't have mobiles back then. So... He didn't even right. know about it from his own family, I don't think, until a friend told him or it was on the news or something like that. But, yeah, he certainly had traumas like that. But last year when I was talking with my mom, we were talking about what was going on for my dad kind of towards the end of his life. And mom had revealed to okay. me that there was a period of time where we stayed in a safe house, my mum, brother and I, for about nine months. And during mm. that time, mum and dad mm. were going to counselling together while we were in separate houses. And this, um, there was this beautiful Christian man who actually gave my parents essentially free counselling, um, which was so, so kind. He was, he was a counsellor and he just, I think he did it for like $5 a session or something like that for them. And, It was one of the first times my dad began to open up a little bit and he was actually doing a lot better during that time. But towards the end of, um, I think, our time in the safe house, there was one session that mum said was really pivotal where basically the counsellor said to my dad, like, you've got to understand your anger has nothing to do with your daughter because I was the one that he mainly took his anger out on aside from my mum. It was like, your anger has nothing to do with your daughter and nothing to do with your wife. And I'd really like to spend some time talking about 
what your experiences were growing up and, you know, what your life's been like. And I'd like to talk about your childhood. And apparently it was as if a a wall just went up and my dad was like, no, absolutely not. I am not talking about that. So something so something. happened. And we don't know. We can make our own inferences, but nobody knows what it was, yeah. whether it was just neglect of some kind or whether it was something really severe. But he refused to talk about right. it. And after that session, he refused to ever go back. And that was when he began wow. to backslide and things got really bad for all of us again and quite dangerous looking back. I mean, I think it's quite lucky that I'm here today, given the way yeah. that he was. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, it's really difficult to talk about because with suicide, often we only hear about, you know, often when somebody takes their life, we hear about how tragic it, what a tragic loss it is and how much it's impacted those left behind. And for me, it was really difficult because obviously I'd never wanted my dad to do something like that. I just wanted the abuse to stop. Right. But I also had this overwhelming right. sense of relief when he was gone. Um, mm. So it was really difficult to talk about all of that. And, you know, looking back, it's like I'm I'm lucky that I'm here. And I guess in some ways, oh, it's really hard to say, but, you know, he, he ended his no, life and he made that decision because he felt, he said to yeah. my mom, he felt it would be better for all of us if he did that. And in some ways, I've got to say, like, even though it's not, something you're supposed to say I think yeah I might I get not it. be here if he hadn't made that decision yeah um because unfortunately he wasn't yeah. going to get help for himself so that's sort of where everything ended up but you know to answer your question yeah like there were definitely things that he must have been through and I just truly wish that he had felt that it was okay for him to get help because everybody's stories could have been so different we just had a um, a great show. I just got out of the studio. I do my weekly um, mental health radio hour. And tonight's topic was men's mental health. And we talked a lot about toxic masculinity and the issues that go with being a male in a society where strength wins, you know, um, and crying and showing your sadness and, you know, taking time off and working on self-care still today is stigmatized for men and even young men today have a very difficult time um, showing how they feel. Um, Now I'm trying to change that because people that follow me, see me cry. I've cried half a dozen times today alone. So I just kind of do it in front of, especially when I'm around young men, I'm speaking at a high school. I, I let myself cry a couple times just to show them that, Hey, Here's this guy with this, I am living undeterred, bulletproof, you know, superhuman guy that seems to be, you know, got his shit together, but here he is up there crying, you know, and we need to crack that door as advocates. You do it in the domestic violence arena and that permeates all different types of, you know, domestic violence isn't just like you said, isn't just getting hit or yelled at. There's lots of ways that there can be abuse. Uh, in a family relationship, and it's not always men towards women either. Um, you know, there there are ways, there are situations when it works the other way around, and that would be a stigma oh, in my absolutely. mind. You know, I 
I can tell you in my case, you know, my, my wife, the last couple of years of her life, she was not my wife. She, the alcoholologist completely destroyed her to the point where she became, you know, paranoid and angry. And so I'd have conversations with her and it literally just had to say, you know, I'll, I'll call you back. You know, uh, we lived in separate houses the last year. Uh, I had to get the environment changed. Yeah. So when our son died, you know, we both were alcoholics, but that kind of set us off the edge. And I drank for about a year and a half, sort of my wife heavily after Seth died. And then I decided to quit. I just had that, you know, epiphany moment where I want to live to be a hundred and I'm not going to do it by drinking and being angry, but I couldn't get my wife to see things that way. So, you know, in a, in a way, and it sounds cruel, but you kind of open that door to being honest. So I'll, I'll walk in. Um, you know, my wife was alcohol, suicide by alcohol. Uh, that's what it was. She wanted to die and alcohol did it to her. That was her death certificate, you know? And, um, so even though alcohol says on the death certificate, I know in my heart that she just didn't want to live. And that was an easy way for her to, to kill herself. And it sounds, and you know, you said something and I know people listening to this are going to say, maybe they won't, you know, I don't really care anymore what people think about me or say about me. I've been through hell and I'm in a good place. Um, but when my wife died, there was a sense of liberation. I mean, she was in a wheelchair. She weighed 86 pounds. She, she looked, she was 46 when she died, but she probably, you know, I mean, if people saw her, they probably thought she was 68. She really aged quickly. And I think for her, it was a liberation. She didn't want to fight anymore and um, wanted to join her son, his, her son and, I felt a sense of liberation. I, I, the way I tell people when I'm private with them, I say, it's like with stage four cancer. It's like when someone dies, you're like, God, I really, it sucks they died of ALS or cancer, but you know, they were in pain and they weren't enjoying life. And you know what? It's their life. And, um, and, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but when she passed away, there was just a sense of relief. Um, and I don't, I, it sounds oh, terrible, but it really was because coming from. the end was so hard. It was so hard. It was just going to see her and just like, man, I just wanted to help and I couldn't. And it was taking a toll on my life and my mental health it's, and it's my so boys. Hard and because as you said, you it is hard. want to help this person. And, you know, we want every person out there who feels hopeless to find hope again mm-hmm. and like yourself to find something that gives them reasons to live and gets them out of bed and gets them excited every every day of their life but for those yeah like I mean our situations are so different but I totally understand what you mean in terms of within the they grief are, there's like aren't. a sense yeah. of relief or they can be yeah. and and you feel yeah. like you're not allowed to say that um a lot of the time right mm. so so you have this event happen. Your your dad takes his own life, and then you're what eighteen? Mm. You said right. Yeah. And then there's a period of time where you kind of had your ups and downs, and then you got that ship righted. What was the thing that righted that ship? What was your your epiphany? Mine was looking in the mirror, realizing that I was fifty two and I needed. I just wanted to stop drinking. Yeah, wow. What was your moment? Yeah, you know what, Jeff? It was getting to this point where I went, I I don't want to go through this anymore. Like I don't want to experience mm-hmm. these things anymore that I'm going through, which was anger, anger and sadness. Well, and it was being in a situation where at age 20, I was sexually assaulted by someone that I'd known for 18 mm-hmm. months, you know, and wow. I got to this point where I was like, I never want to feel this again. I never want to feel this 
fear, you know, every day, a simple right. thing like going to work. I remember being yeah. in the lay-by department. I worked for a retail store and I was in the lay-by department and this man came in to, you know, put some things on lay-by and I just remember feeling so afraid of him and it, it didn't make hmm. sense in my like head. Like a panic, like a panic attack yeah, almost? Yeah, probably in that moment because I do remember yeah. that he looked at me after a little while and was like, are you okay? And I was yeah. like, oh, wow. yeah, oh, it's just, um, yeah, it's just a, just a, busy day like just you know one of those days like I tried to say something but I remember feeling so afraid of him and I went home and wrote in my diary and I was like I hate feeling Mm. this way like I hate feeling like I can't live my life like I'm even too afraid to travel anymore I like I want to go traveling and I I can't even do it because I'm so afraid someone's going to hurt me and yeah Mm. I was I mean I was living in definitely in flight mode in trauma response from what I'd been through I was afraid of seeing that person around town I was afraid of running into him I was afraid of other people hurting me and yeah I just got to this point where I was like I'm sick of going out and drinking all the time and putting myself Mm -hmm. in risky situations you know like I have to take responsibility for that that I'm not responsible for the things Mm -hmm. people have done to me but I am responsible for choosing who I'm hanging out with and choosing what I'm yeah, doing and yep. if I'm drinking right. all the time I'm not making my best decisions so it, yeah it was this rock bottom moment of I never want to feel this way again I never want to be abused again mm-hmm. and if I do not stop mm-hmm. drinking partying being around these kinds of people I am certain that it's going to happen again and it's probably going to be worse next time yeah and so that mm-hmm. was my moment where I went okay I'm going to I've got to really be, I've got, I've got to try and work this out on my own because I, I wasn't going to counseling or anything or seeing a psych. Right. So I was like, how do yep. I stop this happening again? Okay, well, who am I hanging out with? How do I feel around these people? Do they listen to me? Um, some of them do, but, mm. you know, some of them probably not, not the best people to be hanging around with. And then Mm -hmm. I was thinking, what kind of guys am I hanging out with? How do I feel when I'm with them? Do they listen to me? Do they respect me when I say I don't want to do certain things? And so it was a slow process of like beginning to become mindful of of certain things and then trial and error, you know, like I would tell myself I'm never going to go, I'm never going to do this again or I'm never going to be around this kind of person. (laughs) And then the next week I'm like, you know, going on a date with, someone that's really not my type of person and so you know it was hit and miss but through that process I I ended up meeting a a beautiful young man who was actually in my friendship circle for a little while and um, you know I wrote about this in my book that I just I don't know what it was he saw in me because I was still I was still very traumatized still not making great decisions but somehow he saw something in me that I guess he thought he could see who I truly was beneath all Mm -hmm. the trauma and the you know kind of reckless decisions and um he was the one that Mm -hmm. helped me learn how to trust again but that said within Mm -hmm. that I still had to I still had to um do the work myself you know I would I would go okay he says I can trust him but does he show me that I can trust him um, so it was right, a process right. of like, do his, 
actions match up with his words and and they did and because your yeah. trust your trust uh your trust um radar must have been way up i mean must have been really difficult to let male or yeah. female anyone in yeah, your I life had a conversation with him early on where he was like i don't understand why you're like you know sort of without going to the situation he was sort of like oh do you think yeah. I'm going to hurt you? Like, I don't understand why you're behaving this way. Why are you putting this wall up? And I was like, mm. because I am afraid that you're going to hurt me. Like, I am afraid that you're going to take advantage mm-hmm. of me, even though you've never done that before. And that was a huge thing, like, basically for him to sit there, listen to me say that. And I'm sure it was a bit hurtful, but he was able to swallow his ego and go, okay, I understand. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I'm not going to do it, you know, we're not, we're yeah. not going to do anything that you're not comfortable with. And yeah, so he was part of the process of helping me learn how to trust again, but it was, it, it went both ways. Mm. I had to put the, start putting the boundaries up myself as well. Well, that's a beautiful story. Uh, I'm happy yeah, for you. Thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, and someone once said, there is a light in the tunnel. We just want to make sure it's not a train, <laughs> Exactly. you know, <laughs> a train light coming the other yeah. way. But, you know, you know, I think, I think um, our stories are very different, but they are very similar. You know, the fact that, you know, and then I look at my boys and they're about the age you were when you went through your dad's death and your incident that happened to you personally, my boys were 13 and 15 when their brother died, but they were, they were, uh, they were 19 and 21 when their mom died. You know, that, that's, that's a lot that's so for, for those, two boys. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then, you know, I was an alcoholic too, so I didn't, I didn't contribute to anything on, from that perspective. But the reality is, is that when you give your talks and you talk to, it doesn't matter if it's a young woman or a young, young boy, um, and they've had something personally happen to them that they can see, what's the other end what's the other end of this look like the other side of the fence i mean there's a side of misery and pain and anger and suffering and self-torture and you know self-doubt and lack of confidence and then there's the other side of the fence which is resiliency and being undeterred Mm. and learning you know keep learning take on new things i mean at my age i have to keep learning things because it would be so easy for me to get comfortable and go through my little routine and then plop on my couch and watch three hours of Netflix or something and then get up and kind of do it again. But I don't operate very well in those environments. I don't think you do either. Um, And that's one of the beauties of advocacy is that you're free to kind of create your own ways that you want to help people. Um, What are some of those ways as an advocate that you help people? What are some of the main things that you want to talk about? In terms of like helping them find that, that light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, like as an advocate, like I know what advocate means to me. Um, you know, there's a difference between, say, an activist, yeah, someone who's really in your face. Yeah, yeah we, I don't I, have time I've never to be used activist, the word activist because it has very bad connotations for me. I know. <laughs> I don't like it either. Yeah. And I think you and I are advocates. But so let's maybe the people that want to follow you and get your book and learn more about you, what are some things that you do in your advocacy? Yeah. So, um, I guess probably one of the best places to, or a good story to tell is what got me into all of this was back in around 2017. I was actually taking a long road trip 
um, from here in Brisbane to where my my mother's property is, the property we grew up on. And I was thinking about, you know, what's the next thing that I want to advocate on? What do I want to help people around? Because at that stage, you know, I had created um, one of the first domestic violence memorials here in, in our part of Australia. And I'd done a lot of advocacy around DV and I was starting to learn about how much domestic violence intersected with mental health issues and suicide prevention and things like that. And it was during this road trip that I started thinking about, obviously, my dad's unprocessed mental health issues and how that impacted him and right. or I should say unhealed mental health issues. And um, that was what led me to create my, my first book, which was called Reasons to Live, One More Day Every Day. And that ended up becoming a series of three books. And each book goes into 10 different stories of people from around the world who've found their light at the end of the tunnel and, and found a way to, just like yourself, you know, recreate their life and to... Yeah, reconstruct, yeah, reconstruct, reconstruct yourself. Reconstruct their yeah. life from the trauma or the pain that they've been through and find a way to turn that pain into mm -hmm. some kind of purpose and find meaning from that. And um, I think, you know, mm -hmm. that's been a big part of my advocacy is um, the books that I've written. So the Reasons to Live series and then my book, The Stories We Carry, are really about championing, championing this idea and this message that our trauma doesn't have to be a life sentence. Um, and that can right. actually be really controversial when I say that sometimes. There are people that are like, no, like, I'm broken and I'm going to be broken forever. Right. <laughs> and yep. I'm like, I yep. understand that there are parts of us that may never be fully healed, but we don't have to live as yeah. though we're broken and everything, you know, we're a victim of, of life and we're never going to find joy again. And we can't go for the opportunities that we want to go for because we're just broken. You know, I absolutely reject that way of thinking. Um, and I know you, I, I do you would as well. I do too. And yep. so, yeah, like my main forms of advocacy are definitely through my books because I found that the, it's really interesting because a lot of people think when they see advocates that maybe the, the most effective way to empower people is through speaking and, you know, public speaking and all these sorts of things. And mm -hmm. I do do that. And that is a really powerful way to impact a lot of people in a short space of time. But what I've found is really powerful about storytelling and writing as a form of advocacy is that you can often create these incredible connections with the reader that you might not be able to do in person because when we see somebody mm -hmm. and you know for example if I'm standing you know on a stage or just talking to a group of people it's inevitable that there's going to be you know probably at least someone in that crowd that's like I don't like Jazz's hair or I don't like her voice. Uh -huh. You know, there's going to be things that yeah. we focus on and we, they can become distractions. They can become, um, they can create like a little bit of a, you know, a block between us and that person. Yeah. But when yeah. you are reading a book or reading someone's story, if it's well written, I should say, you can really bring that person into your journey with you and they can feel almost like they're sitting right mm -hmm. there with you. Um, and this mm -hmm. is something that, you know, I'm very happy that a lot of people have said to me when they've read my books is I felt like I was right there with you, Jazz, or 
I, I couldn't mm-hmm. stop reading this book. Like I stayed up till 2 a.m. because I couldn't put it down because I was just in the moment with you. And I think that's what's really beautiful about writing as a form of advocacy is that sometimes you can create these much deeper bonds and really help people have these profound realizations about their own life that you might not be able to do in person because that person might be distracted by certain things about you and your voice and your clothing, right. or whatever it is. There's certain judgments or biases that might come in. Um, so I, I love, you know, using the power of writing in my advocacy. That's really how I help people. And I've mm-hmm. said, um, I've said this before that, you know, everyone has their own gift, their own special, you know, gifts. And I feel that the way that I help people is through my words. And sometimes that is, you know, spoken words, but a lot of the time it's, it's written, written words. Um, so yeah, my advocacy is really through my books. And I think that's the main way that I, that I help people and then public speaking as well. And, um, yeah, just, just advocacy and trying to shine a light on this message. As I said, that trauma doesn't have to be a life sentence and it's okay if you're still dealing with things from your past, it's okay if you're still impacted by certain things, but it doesn't mm-hmm. have to stop you from rebuilding a life that that you love and that helps you serve yourself and other people. I like the way you framed it, a gift, because sometimes unfortunate events or chaotic events can release that gift. It can It can reveal a gift. Like some people didn't know they had a gift for writing until drunk driver killed their child and they write a book on drunk driving or yeah. something they figure out they're a good writer and some people don't know they're a good speaker they're terrified until their wife dies of breast cancer now they're running around the country giving talks mm-hmm. on breast cancer awareness you know it's like so sometimes you know um really beautiful things can come out of the pits of hell i guess the abyss as i call yeah. it you know you're absolutely, um, when you're absolutely right and it reminds me of when, quite a when, few people. yeah when you're at the bottom I do too. Some of the most creative people I know, uh, you talk people to them with the and most trauma. you find out <laughs> their why. Yeah, <laughs> there's something to say mm-hmm. about that. And, and and maybe maybe we as a society could spin this and sell it as trauma. Trauma doesn't have to be bad. I mean, you said something and I, I always kind of add on it when I say the same thing. But, you know, it's okay to let trauma, def- trauma define mm-hmm. you. Just define you positively. Yeah, I like We that. always say don't let trauma define us. I, I, I don't agree with that statement. I perfectly love trauma defining me positively. We just don't want the positive to define us negatively. So when I speak to kids, I say, it's okay to have trauma define you. I, and leave it at that. And I kind of just say, but make sure it defines you in a good way. You know, it defines you by writing a book. It defines you by joining a nonprofit board. It defines you by not drinking alcohol. I love, I love that know? so much. I've um, actually never thought of it in that way. So yeah, you've just helped me see that in a, a different way too. Because we only <laughs> well, I was hear about, in... you know, people always say like, you don't have to be defined by don't things define that you. Don't let to define you. you. Yeah, mm. right. I always liked stoicism in college, um, and I studied it a little bit in some of the philosophy, the ancient philosophy class. There's a Greek philosophy that's two or three thousand years old, and there's a resurgence now. So Ryan Holiday has a book out. There's the, the Daily Stoics on Twitter and. It's it's kind of a new renaissance. Sorry, my my dogs are going crazy over here. Um, so there's this new resurgence of stoicism, and really a lot of stoicism is just how you frame things. And so I like to take situations when someone says, 
don't want to define it and think, well, how can I creatively, creatively turn it a little bit to, to maybe focus on the positive side of it? So I want to go back to something you said that caught my attention. <laughs> my dog is, he's so mad at me. I'm not letting him out right now. Is he like spinning I can in circles or my something? Have, well, yeah, I, I hate to get up, but Molly can edit this out. But, um, so, uh, you said something about meaning. <laughs> He's like, no, I will oh. be in this. Hold on. I got to let him out. All good. Go. All right. I'm back. Sorry about <laughs> okay. that. I don't have an editing crew. I, my editor will hopefully she catches it and pulls that out. But no, you said something about meaning and purpose. And I actually talked about this on my radio show tonight because people interchange those two words and they really are different. Um, Meaning and purpose are different. Um, But we always say, oh, find your meaning and purpose. Meaning to me, I'll see what your thoughts are on this, is more intrinsic. It's more, how are you uh, taking the environment and how are you extracting, how are you interpreting it? You know, what, 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 what are you attributing to whatever happened to you? That, that's your meaning. It's kind of a, a value proposition that, that you, you know, you feel internally. Whereas I think purpose is more external. It's more, it's more action oriented. It's more, um, what am I going to do now with this? Something happened to me. I've got a lot of meaning. This means a lot to me. My son passed away, but that means a lot to me. But that, there's no purpose in that. Purpose is like something I have to do actionable after I kind of figure out what the meaning is. So I've been talking to people about when you talk about meaning and purpose, really, they're, they're two separate things. I don't know if you ever thought of it that way. And I, I tend to lately focus more on purpose. Mm. So I've kind of dropped the meaning thing because meaning is too subjective. You and I could have the same event happen to us. Yeah. And we could interpret it completely different. Whereas, whereas purpose, you know, that is very individual as well, but purpose is kind of what moves the ball. that gets yeah, things well, going. Like, what do I feel Meaning I'm is meant just, to do with this? Yeah. Mm. Right. Well, because my son died. I understand that. What am I going to do yeah. about it? My wife died. I get that. It sucks. What am I going to do about it? And that's the difference between meaning. Their death means a lot to me. Purpose is a podcast, the book I wrote the app we have coming out in July, you know, the tour I did last summer, that that's purpose. That that's to me, I think it's action. So what's your thoughts on, on that? Do you feel kind of the same way or do you have different interpretations? Oh, what a great question. I've actually never really thought deeply about that before. So that was really like really insightful hearing you talk about that. Cause as you were talking about it, I was at first, I was thinking, oh, I probably see meaning as, as being the action oriented thing. Cause I was thinking about, you know, you've got to take action to to find some sort of meaning. But now that I think about it more deeply, I think when we talk about meaning, it's about, I feel like that's more about reflection. Like it's reflecting on the situation and, yeah, as you said, what does it mean to you? But the purpose really, you're right, it's the action piece. It's like what am I going to do mm-hmm. with this life event or this experience and and the meaning that I feel around that. Um, And you're right as well that meaning can be different for every person. I mean, there are plenty of people out Mm -hmm. there who've been through 
sexual assault like me that don't find any positive meaning from that that they can use to create that's a tough better, one. Yeah. you know, better a better life for anyone else. It's like this is the worst thing that's yeah. ever happened to me. And like I completely, you know, completely understand and empathize with that. Um but I think the purpose piece for me is it does require action, but I think again it's also a like what do I feel on a personal level that I'm meant to mm-hmm. do with this life event that I've experienced and the meaning that I've found within that? How am I going to use that to create some sense of fulfillment for me and also to create fulfillment for others or to serve others? So it's definitely. Yeah, in service with you. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely an action oriented thing. But I think, I don't know if I know how to articulate it yet, but I think there's something deeper than just the action because it's also about finding out what that particular thing can like how that can help others and how it can yeah create a sense of fulfillment and and then purpose for you as well well you learn more about yourself when you have a sense of purpose Mm. and you know um Mike Tyson once said famously, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I like that. It's like, I had a plan. I was going to retire. My wife and I buy a Caribbean place. I'm a certified scuba diver. So is she. That was my plan. And then I got punched in the face. I got punched in the face again. So that is so true of a quote. And you did too. Yours was at a younger age. You know, I didn't have anything traumatic in my life until Steph died. You know, yeah, that's, that amazing. that's like hard to think. The, I grew I think up for me. And now that I'm a parent too, like that is oh, one of the worst traumas I feel like anybody could ever go through. Well, in the six years preceding, we dealt with the addiction mm-hmm. and substance abuse and the incarcerations and prison and jail and the lying and the... So the six years prior to his death was yeah, hell. Because you'd already lost so, him in one know, sense. You'd lost him to addiction and then you yeah. lost him to incarceration. And yeah. Then, mm. yeah. And so what I do when I try to replay moments, and, and I, you know, I, I get sad. I mean, I, I was today, just a couple hours ago, I was on my deck reflecting some things and I got, I got really down quick. But, you know, I'm used to it now and I don't fight it. My, my son even came out and said, are you okay, dad? I said, no, I'm not right now. I just... I need, I don't lie to my kids. I don't say, yeah, I'm okay when I'm not. It's like, <laughs> that. that's that's when you miss signals from people. So I want people to tell me the truth. If I ask, ask you, Jazz, are you okay? You're not. I want you to tell me. that. That's what a friend is for. That's what an advocate's for. Especially that's what your family's for. You can't tell your family you're not okay. Who the hell are you going to tell? A psychiatrist? They don't, they don't care about you. They, they do maybe, but most of them, they, they want the next patient coming in and they're just they're all too busy. They're all booked out months. And so obviously it's a, it's a, for a lot of them, it is a money grab, but for a lot of them, it's not. But anyway, um, so, you know, I try to look at, you know, what's, what I'm doing with my self-care and how I can extrapolate data from what happened to me in the past and then carry that mm-hmm. forward, to not only make my life better, but those people around me, you know, it's all about learning, right? I mean, you know, it's all about evolving and adapting and taking what life has given us. Sometimes it's a really horrific event. Sometimes it's a, a a great thing, like winning a lottery or something, you know, it's like 
life's going to give you things and take things and how we how we adapt to that is really what determines our mental wellness. I think it's about finding what's what's going to give us as individuals a sense of you know purpose while we're here on this earth because for some people you know some people will say that the meaning of life to them is about you know their faith and about um, or about religion and things like that. And then I find that for pe- if there are people who don't have a sense of faith, then they're like, well, what's my meaning in life? Yeah. And I think for all of us, <laughs> it's got to be about finding. Well, I'm, I'm, I laugh because I'm, I'm agnostic. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't believe in, in God and I don't believe in the afterlife per se. So yeah, I struggle. I'm laughing because I was going to write a book on grieving without God because it's hard. Yeah. I, I don't have a backup plan. I don't have a backup plan. I got to find all my solace and peace internally yeah. myself. I don't have a celestial being showing me the way. And maybe there is something showing me the way. I, 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 I don't know it. Um, and I'm as agnostic. I just am comfortable not yeah. knowing. I'm not an atheist. There's a difference. Atheist claims yeah. they know. I've my whole life always said, how can somebody know there's a God? In other words, God told that person and not me. Well, I mean, I don't understand it. Why, why would God not tell all of us? Why, why would he just handpick people? So I always struggled. I mean, this is like 10, 11, 12 years old. When I went to church a few times, I'm like, why do some of these people been told this secret? And I, I wasn't told about Santa Claus, you know, that was my mind. And as I grew up and I grew up and I didn't see any more evidence that my thought was inaccurate. And people I hung out with were a lot of them were agnostic and a lot of them were, were Catholics and Christians. And we seemed to all get along. It didn't really matter who, what we believed in as long as we were good people. You know? I think what's really so, interesting. Yeah, I, between... I, I interrupted you, but I wanted to jump on that because as an agnostic human, it, it is hard for me to figure out the meaning behind all yeah. this stuff. I, I, I'm a moral person, but I struggle with um, I struggle with faith the way it's defined by a lot of people. Because I have faith. I have faith in you. I have faith in my kids. I have faith in the car that passes me on the interstate that they aren't drunk. You know, I have, I believe in faith. I just don't, I don't think that religious people can own that word. Yeah. I think and I we think that's as non-religious people have a right to use it too. I think that's what connects us like between those who are, you know, people of faith or people who are religious and those who are either agnostic or mm-hmm. atheists. I think the thing that does connect us is that we are, you know, for people who say don't have faith, but they're doing you know, they're, they're living in their purpose is that we're all trying to find something that gives us a sense of purpose. And for those of us who are living in our purpose, we're trying to make something better for something else, someone else. And I think bigger, bigger than us, something we're bigger all than looking us. looking at a bigger picture, whether for some people that's doing it, um, you know, via God or whether it's that they're just doing it to make, looking at a bigger picture in terms of making life better for somebody else. But I feel like all of yeah. us need to have a sense of purpose, something greater than us that we are a part of. And it doesn't have to be standing on a stage or touring the world or writing books or any of that. It yeah. can just be like right. maybe right. once a hanging out with your dog. Yeah. Like for somebody, <laughs> it might be that once a month they volunteer at a certain service, or maybe it's that they get involved in, doing things at their, their child's school or one of their local schools to help out, um, you know. But there has to be something, I 
I feel like to truly thrive, we need something that is driving us to look yeah, at a bigger picture, like to be part of something that is for the greater good of society or just another individual. I don't know. That's the way I yeah, whether you're ag- whether you're agnostic or religious or whatever, you can still surrender yourself to the knowledge of not mm. knowing. There, there's no there's no shame in saying I don't know and. You know, I got to thinking in college, I, I used this social experiment with some friends and it didn't go over very well. But I said, let's imagine that there was no hell or heaven. Then how many people that are religious today would say, well, if there's no hell and the only reason I was doing things was to avoid punishment, that, that's not really genuine, authentic altruism if you're only doing something to avoid jail or avoid hell or in the other way around if you're only doing something to get rewarded to be a martyr you know whatever to be that's not genuine authentic you so for me on either side of the spectrum i'm like okay why can't we just do things right regardless of what you believe in just be a good person what what is why does religion have to own morality? Mm. And I've always struggled with this. And, that, and that's why when my son and my wife died, I went like, man, maybe this, maybe there is a God. Maybe I, this is my punishment for being agnostic. Oh, wow. And then all of a sudden, a Catholic friend of mine would have their child die. And I'm like, well, God didn't seem to favor them, yeah. you know, any more than they did me. So I, I play those games and I'm 57 now. I'm comfortable in my faith. I am as faithful as any person on the planet. I'm not, maybe not faithful. I have faith. It's just different. Yeah. It's a spiritual faith. It's a connected faith. I I look at animals and the trees and the ocean, and I just have this awe, the beauty of nature. That's my faith. And why why would why would that be any less valuable to society than somebody who goes to church three days a week? Yeah, and I really hear you on what you, you know? said earlier about um, you know being agnostic. You're like, I just haven't seen anything yet that that makes me believe I'm waiting complete like gives me absolutism one way or the other and you know I can mm-hmm. completely understand that because you know and this is something else I wrote about in my book was like the struggle after um I think it was yeah after I'd been assaulted like looking at people or friends around me because I went to a Christian school and you know most of okay. you know half of my friends were all Christian and at church and then there was this other circle of friends I had from after school, you know, from work and things like that, who would, none of them were mm-hmm. Christian and they were living very different lives to the <laughs> Christian friends. And I was sort of in the middle of both of these yeah. worlds, not feeling like I truly belonged to either one. And I remember, yeah, really struggling with, you know, how come I've tried to do everything by the book and yet all these bad things have happened to me. And is it my fault? Yeah, exactly. how did I not believe enough? Right. You know, and, right. you know, of course, these days I understand that from seeing, you know, like you said, the people that lose kids to cancer and all kinds of things, I don't think that, you know, there's, there's nothing we're doing as people that is causing us to um, deserve things to go wrong in our, our lives, you know, unless you're, I'm talking about 100%. You know, mass murderers and things like that. Yeah, but, I like the way you, I like the way you worded that. Um you mentioned something. I heard this on a podcast and I was with a friend of mine that was talking about um, his, I, I divulged a few moments in my life, some very recently where 
they were very spiritual moments, but I didn't feel any religious pull. Like I didn't see anything from above. And this friend of mine was saying, well, you know, I was in this car accident and four people died and I was the only one that lived. And so, you know, that was my moment where my faith in God and I'm thinking to myself, what about the three people in the, in, in the car that died? Yeah. <laughs> where, where was, they could have been, they could have been strong. I think as humans, Odds we're are somebody in that car always was, trying to find meaning in everything right. and whatever yeah. gives you meaning like, and gets you through is great. But I see where you're coming from. It's like, I agree. I agree. But what about, but I just, it's like, man, I feel like sometimes we just dumb ourselves down and, and we just take the easy road. And it's like, you know, um, I remember, I remember, and again, I, I hate to rain in anyone's parade or throw water in anyone's big bonfire, but you know, it's like, it'd be easy for me to look out my window and see a Cardinal and say, Oh, it's my wife talking to me or cause she loved Cardinals or my, my mom did too. And it's like, I, maybe my mom died too. It's like, maybe it's my mom. And I could see the utility and kind of playing that game. But if everybody on the planet, saw a cardinal and said the same thing then all of our loved ones are coming back as birds and it just i just like i, I start playing out the scenarios going okay I, i'm not saying people shouldn't do that but for me for jeff johnson i i just i don't play that narrative i just don't see a bird and see my son i i see my son right here mm. that's what i see him as i don't see him as any sign from and anything I don't think and there's any right i wrote a blog in any of that i mean i was right. speaking with right. um you know, your dear friend as, as well, Maria Lessie, but we were talking about. Oh, I love her yeah, to death. We were talking yeah. about yeah. Um, signs because she'd been sharing with me about signs that she feels she gets from Rob. Um, and for anyone that's listening, you know, sure. this is her husband who passed away yep. suddenly um, some years ago. Yeah. But she was talking to me about that. And I said to her, wow, like I've never, I don't really remember having any really clear signs around, or especially not my dad. And I said, because I have. It's taken me a long time to even get to a place where I have some understanding and empathy and don't hate him, you know, which has only been in the last yeah. few years or the last two years probably. But I said I've never had signs from him or anything. And um, she just interviewed me on her podcast and I said, it's so interesting, Marie, because I just, I said I don't know why, but today I just asked God like <laughs> Well, I said, if if mm -hmm. these these things happen and Marie's husband can give her signs, I was like, if dad, if you're out there, like, can you give me a sign and show me? And I like specifically something happened, specifically right? said, like, I want to see a picture of the little mermaid. Cause like before everything went bad with my dad, oh, yeah. one thing that we connected over when I was a really little girl was that I loved the little mermaid. And um, this was mm. like a really significant thing in my life that like when I was young and he was doing okay he'd bought me like this little mermaid nighty mm. and I used to wear it all the time and even when I was 12 I could still fit yeah. into it and I remember during the time that we were in the safe house when I was about 16 he gave me a birthday he sent me a birthday card and um he didn't know where we were so I think he'd left it at our house and I must have gone to our house when he was oh, okay. away and I got the card or maybe he okay. gave it to my mom at her workplace or something, but I opened the card and it was a little mermaid on the card. And as a 16 year old, I was like, Oh, who does he think he is? Like he's trying to reconnect with this, that part of us doesn't exist anymore. You know, like I was really angry about yeah. it, but, but then last year when I was doing this, I was like, well, 
this is a random thing. So if you're out there, Dad, I want to see a photo of the Little Mermaid and it has to be the original Little Mermaid cartoon. It can't be the new Little Mermaid that's being made or anything like that. And it it was so random because I remember it was like towards then, I think it was actually the day after, and I was like, well, I didn't get my sign yesterday. (laughs) And then um, I think that night I was thinking about it and I was like, like I remembered something tweaked in my mind and I was like, hang on, I remember being on YouTube earlier and I was scrolling and there was something I saw and I was like, I can remember who the YouTuber was that posted it, but I can't exactly remember what it was. And this wasn't a YouTuber that I followed. They just came up in my feed and randomly. And I went to their page and like scrolled through some recent videos they'd done and they'd done a reaction video to The Little Mermaid, the new film, but it was a photograph of the old cartoon and I was just like well, there you go that's when I went <laughs> I called Marie and I was like what the yep. hell Marie like this yeah. she was so happy that's, for me that's, but I was uh, like okay that's something that's made me go right there maybe there is something spiritual out there where our loved ones can communicate yeah. with us and I, I don't know for sure but that was a hell of a random occurrence you know um yeah so oh, I certainly would love yeah. it yeah, it'd be nice if there was a, a portal that you could, even at death, you could go to and see yeah. all your loved ones. Um, I still kind of always leave that door open, but like I just haven't had the evidence, yeah. and I'm fairly skeptical person. I, I think I learned to sit and look at yeah. the photograph, as you said, of your son or of your wife, and sit there and reflect and have that time of reflection. I don't think that's any less yeah. powerful or beautiful. Um, it's just about that's a good point and maybe you will get some random sign but I love you know I love hearing when people share signs like that because I'm like well maybe that it is a thing that can happen more but I just think we have to find comfort in in something like we have to find a way to connect you know with those beautiful memories or that person and I don't think it matters how it how it happens yeah I like that perspective because You know, whatever you can glean from something that adds utility, adds value to your life, why does it matter? A, if it's real, if it's not real, if it's accidental, if it's intentional, why does it matter? You know, if if you feel better and your people around you get inspired and everybody's winning, why does it matter? Right? That's why I watch people argue on Twitter and stuff like that. I'm like, why does it matter? (laughs) Why does it matter? Even, I don't know, we could get pretty philosophical and some things, but going, I guess it's a quick hour, Jazz. I mean, that's always a sign of a really good show is when an hour goes by fast. Um, where do, how do people reach you? Uh, how do they get your books? Do you have it on Audible? Um, how, how can people follow you and learn more about what you do? Yeah, thank you. So, and it has gone quick. You're absolutely right. I can't believe we're at an hour, uh-huh. but... Um, yeah, if anybody wants to get the stories we carry or the Reasons to Live series, you can always get it at um, jazzrollinson.com slash books, or you can find them on Amazon. They're all on Amazon or any of your you know favorite online book retailers. I have had some people asking me to do an audio book of the stories we carry, and so I'm, I may end up doing that at some point. I haven't done it yet. 
Um, but definitely Amazon or else, yeah, jazzrollinson.com slash books. And, um, yeah, and then if anybody's interested in writing their own book, you know, if you're writing a memoir and you want someone to help guide you through the process and help you put your own, you know, life story of turning um, pain into purpose into a, a really beautiful book, you can go to jazzrollinson.com slash book coaching and, yeah, all my speaking stuff is at, you know, jazzrollinson.com slash speaking as well if you want me to come in and speak to your um, students or your team or anything like that. So all in the one place, you can find it pretty easily. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Marie and, you know, I know she just, um, uh, I, I don't know what the terminology is, stopped or shut mm-hmm. down or uh, her um I can't remember her podcast now, Loving Life After yes. Loss, I think, right? Okay. But there was something on social media where she was, I, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm saying that incorrectly. But anyway, my point wasn't about that. My point was about she's a great soul. Yeah, she's a warm she's heart. You know, she, we just hit it off great. I think I was on her podcast two or three times and she's been on mine and, you know, um, feel the same connection towards you. So something's on that part of the world, something's working out well. There's some good people over there. <laughs> yeah, she's um, a pretty special You know, so, yeah. And again, that's been the beauty of this type of format I'm in. But, um, well, listen, I really appreciate it. Uh, we're at a hard hour. That's great. Um, an honor to meet you. Uh, I, I plan on putting all your contact information when this does post in a, probably a couple months. I've got quite a few backlogs. Um, but any last words of wisdom you want to give to anybody who's in the in the grips of struggling through life? Mm, I think probably coming back to the message I shared earlier that um, no matter what you've been through or what things have been done to you and no matter where you are in your healing journey, I just want you to know that, you know, life can and it does get better. Um it really does. Mm. And that's something that I, I truly know because I've lived it myself. And I think, as I said before, like I never want anyone to feel that you have to be at 100% healing and where nothing ever upsets you or triggers you or anything like that to be thriving in life. You can still experience panic attacks. You can still experience down days or bouts of depression. And it doesn't mean that you are broken beyond repair and it doesn't mean that there's no hope for you or that you can't go on and and live a life of meaning and purpose it's just about learning to live Mm -hmm. with those parts of yourself and continue on your healing journey and understand that you know these things that um you've been through they may actually be a, a really beautiful way for you to Um, create positive ripples of impact in in somebody else's life and it's just about looking for how you can how you can create those ripples you have to because the other option is being a victim and that's not fun um so i had someone once say and i'll wrap it up with this they said whether you are depressed anxious sad happy you know whatever stage you're in the world is going to go on without you so you you no matter what you're going through, the world's gonna go on. So you might as well enjoy yeah. it. Enjoy the ride. You can be as sad as you want, the world doesn't give a shit, and it's gonna keep rotating and keep going on. And in a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years, no one's gonna know who I was. Very very likely chance I'll just drift away like everyone else has in history. And so why not with that 
wisdom and knowledge that everything's impermanent, why not make the best that we can with the limited amount of time we have, mm. right? That's And also for those like yourself who have written, you know, written books and the work you do, I I hope that lives on, you know, well after you do and so that people do know about you and your work. But regardless, as you said, you know, the world's going to keep turning. So why don't we just make the best, <laughs> make the best of it while we're here? Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and a great honor to meet you. And um, I'm sure our paths are crossed. Yes, okay? I hope to have you on my podcast very soon too. So it's been a pleasure. I'm waiting <laughs> for the invitation. Just send me a link and I'll sign up. Um, all right, we'll keep living in the dirt. Okay, Jess? You too. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.